Well, good day to all of you, and welcome to the midway point of our series entitled Jesus Meets Real Life. And I, I always want to remind us why these series are so important, right? We're a people of the book, we're a church that loves the Bible, and what I love about a series like this is that it reminds us that the Bible, while it is holy, while it is ancient, while it is profound, it's also practical. And it gives us guidance for the things of life, especially the things that when you see them as topics— you, you drill down into those topics and you know, man, there's a lot of challenge behind the different subjects that we look at. And so in the series so far, we looked at marriage and we've looked at communication. Then last week we looked at sex and, and how the Bible speaks to all of these things. And today we're looking at what sex tends to lead to babies, kids, children, parenting. That's what it's all about today. And we all know, man, parenting is a rewarding thing, but it's a challenging thing. Now, some of you may be sitting there and you're like, uh, this is not for me because I'm not a parent. That's okay. Here's the deal. If you're a grandparent, if you're an aunt, if you're an uncle, if you have siblings, if you might have kids one day, if you ever interact with kids, today is for you. Everybody's involved in this one. It'll be great. So I'm going to go ahead and get us ready for today with a word of prayer. But before I do, I want to just remind you, we have an app. The app, there are notes, tons of blanks that you can fill in today. Just little nuggets of wisdom and insight that we're going to glean from Scripture uh, as to how we can do this effectively, thoughtfully, and really in the spirit of grace and of Christ. That's the heart behind all of this. And so with that, if you would join me right now for prayer as we settle our hearts, we're going to dive right into the stuff for the day. Jesus, uh, I thank you that you are a good and kind God who deals with an imperfect race in an incredibly gracious way. And certainly on the subject matter of today, I, I pray for grace in my words. I pray for grace to be laid in our hearts because I know that many of us at many levels on this topic, uh, we might have some regrets or we might have some heartache or we might have some panic or some just trying to figure it out as we go. I mean, there can be all sorts of different emotions across the spectrum. And I don't want this to be a day where we are plagued, but rather a day where we are encouraged, reminded, guided, uh, maybe given some tools. And in this, just uh, that we can recall that we are reliant on you to help us do these things and to do them to the best of our ability. And so Jesus, we just look for you to really uh, just shape us today and share with us what it is you have for us. So we ask your spirit to teach and to guide and to inspire in your kind name. Amen. So um, the last few years have been a little bit challenging in the parental child world. And I don't simply mean the pandemic, though that was really hard. And the fact that our kids had to stay home from school for a couple of years. Many of you became homeschool parents. You didn't know you were going to become a homeschool parent. But you became a homeschool parent, and you were trying to navigate all of that. And then, of course, our kids, they couldn't have their extracurricular events. They didn't have prom or normal graduations or homecoming or sporting things or, you know, recitals. I mean, all that kind of evaporated. And then from that, there was a lot of talk about how this has created new anxiety or stress or depression for kids. And yet, when we look at some of the data in our culture, uh, this has been a problem now for a while, well over a decade where we're looking at kind of the Gen Z category and the new generation coming up behind them. And, and we see that there is a lot of unique mental health challenges that are plaguing them, right? So depression is really high among kids. Anxiety, discouragement, self-harm, even suicidal ideation. Like all these things are in there. And if you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or whatever, and you're hearing this data, it, it instantly kind of puts a weight on your chest. 
It gives you this sense of pressure like, man, that I got to make sure I'm really getting this nailed. I'm really getting it done. I'm really on top of this. Because again, it, there's so much at stake in the midst of that, right? Like it just feels like an extra weight that you didn't anticipate in this whole thing. Now, what I want to be clear with right from the get-go, because that's the pressure we tend to feel as the adults in the room. But in this, I want to remind us that when it comes to this process of rearing kids, and it takes a village, so again, that's why I have all these different components involved in raising kids. When it comes to that, I want to remind us just from the get-go that, you know what, there is no such thing as perfect parenting. There's no such thing as the perfect child rearing. The only perfect parents I've ever met in my life are the people that are yet to have kids, right? Isn't it true? Like you get that couple and they're like, oh, we're getting ready to start a family. We're so excited. We've seen how everybody else has done it wrong. We're going to do it right. We got to figure it out. We've judged all of them. We know how to do it perfectly. I'm like, oh, that's cute. Can't wait to see you when they're two, all right? Because no good plan survives first contact with the enemy, all right? And in that world, perfect parenting's enemy is your kids, right? So it's not going to happen. At best, what we're doing in this whole enterprise is we're doing our best. So I want to remind us of that. We are not going to nail this at any level. We're always going to be growing and learning and adapting and facing the challenges of this. And I think there's three reasons for this really fast. The first reason this can be a challenge for us, even though it's rewarding, it's a challenge. It's a simple fact that as you are shaping lives as a parent, uh, those lives are shaping you. So you haven't arrived as a human being when you go into the enterprise of being a part of raising kids, right? You're still figuring out yourself. You're still figuring out life. You're still learning how to solve problems. And so that's one reason why it makes it really, really hard. The second reason it's hard is because no sooner do you start to kind of master the level that they're at, they level up, right? It's like Mario World, you know, you're like, I beat a boss, and now I got another level, and I got to beat this boss, and I know I have a feather, and I can fly like a squirrel, but I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't know how to use all these tools, right? And so they level up on you, and you go, okay, but when the next one comes up, I know that level. No, you don't know that level, because the next one changes the rules of the level, right? And so you're always kind of figuring it out. And then the third reason I think this is so challenging is simply put, this whole endeavor is imperfect people raising imperfect people. Or as one writer says, it's sinners raising sinners. It's a level of the blind leading the blind. Now, one is more blind than the other, for sure, but that makes all of this really, really kind of difficult. And, and so this is where, again, I want to be clear that we're going to do this imperfectly, but we want to try to do our best, as best as we can. And I think this whole thing is a little bit like, like navigating by the North Star, right? We're never going to go to the North Star. We're never going to reach that destination, but we can use it to guide us. And that's kind of the principles of the day, to guide us to try to be more effective. Now, the place I want to start as far as in the Bible is a very familiar passage for any parent that's been floating around in the church for any length of time. It's out of Proverbs chapter 22, starting in verse 6. It says, Direct your children onto the right path, and when they are older, they will not leave it. Now, I read that, and, and I want to give us a little bit of insight to this here. Uh, first of all, it, it gives us bookends. It says, do this early, and this will hopefully, but what, what you will have later. So start them on this track, and when they're older, they won't depart from it. Now, when we hear this, we go, oh, there's the formula, there's the key. No. Here's what you want to know about this. In Proverbs, what Solomon gives is 
things that are generally true, but it doesn't mean that these are guaranteed results. Proverbs aren't promises, they're principles. See, I say this because I've seen Christian ministries and Christian leaders who say, the problem is, if you don't do Proverbs right, your kids will turn out wrong, but if you do it right, your kids are going to turn out fine every time. I'm like, you're cute, because that's not how it works. I've seen parents do this awesome, and yet their kids still grow up, and they go a different way, they break their heart, they choose a different life that they would, than they anticipated for their kids, and so there's no guarantee that if you do this, you will get that. All right, that's not true. In fact, I think this is even why Solomon writes Ecclesiastes after Proverbs, right? He's like, okay, these are generally true, but then life kind of falls apart, and so this is also true too, and sometimes there's a clash. The other thing, though, about this, I think it's really important, just even from a principal perspective, is that it reminds you, you might make all the right investment at the beginning, and you have to wait till they're older to see the fruit of that. And between the beginning and the end, they may go down a lot of roads, do a lot of things, Choose a lot of paths that are not the ones that you would have decided on for them, but that's a part of the journey too. And so it reminds me then, as a parent and now as a grandparent, that, that what we're trying to do is just be faithful to the task. We're not always guaranteed the results we want, but we want to be faithful to the, the, to the task of making these investments in the lives of kids to try to direct them to the best of our ability. Now to do that, I think it means a couple of different things. And we're going to be high orbit today. We're not going to get into the weeds of all the parenting plans that are out there. I just want to start with some things or give us some ideas that give us some direction on how to try to do this well. And the first thing we need to know and need to do is realize what we're dealing with. Right? So what we're kind of up against. And when I was thinking about this particular point, it reminded me of when I was a little boy. I used to, every summer, go to uh, Cody, Wyoming and hang out on a dude ranch which is the coolest thing for a nine-year-old, right? Like a nine-year-old boy wakes up in the morning and I'm like, do I fish, do I ride a horse, or do I chase a greased pig? Like, what do I do? Super rad to grow up that way. But one of the things I learned on the ranch is that some of the horses would become barn sour. And a barn sour horse is one that says, you know what, I don't go out enough, now they want to ride me, I don't want to be ridden, I don't want to go in a line, I don't want to do anything, I'm going to do my own thing. And so a barn sour horse is like, sorry, not in it to play. I'm going to just be my own horse here. And when I think about that, I go, oh, that's our children. They're all born barn sour. They want to do their own thing. Now, I know there's people that say, hey, no, children, when they're born, they're born innocent and sweet. I'm okay with that. But by the time they're two, something changes, right? And they become kind of independent, their own person. They have a sense of their own independent drive. In fact, in Proverbs 22, no sooner does he say, hey, train up a child in the way they should go. He gets to verse 15 and lets us know what we're up against by saying, but you got to understand a youngster's heart is filled with foolishness. And the foolishness is I want to do my own thing and go my own way. And if you watch kids for any length of time, you will see the folly that is bound up in the heart of a child. In fact, I saw it the other day. Uh, I went to Chick-fil-A with my family because that's Jesus' sandwich place, and so we went there. And all good Christians go to Chick-fil-A, and so we do that. And uh, I go into the little playland with my granddaughter, Pepper, who's two and a half years old. And she's just in there for a while, going up the stairs and going down the slide, having a great time. And then another little girl comes in. And then two other little girls come in, and they're all going up the stairs and down the slide. But as a grandfather sitting there, you're like, ah, oh, it's a lot of energy. This is feeling nervous really fast. Something's going to happen. And Pepper is the smallest of all of them, 
right? So I'm like, what's going to happen to my little granddaughter? These girls could just walk over the top of her and not mean to and everything else. Well, they get to the top of the stairs and Pepper turns around to the girl behind her and says, stop, I'm going first and puts her hand out on her chest, right? And the little girl like, like is this? And she's like, you can't push me and pushes Pepper's arm down. And I'm like, oh, here it is. And in that, I'm like, I'm a bad grandfather because Pepper has not learned, like, you're like a, a featherweight and she's like a heavyweight. Like, she's got reach, she's got size, she's got height. You're gonna lose this battle, right? And, and I see this thing and then they kind of, it's cool and they just go back to playing and it's offline. I'm like, crisis averted, right? But I just thought like, wow, here's this thing in my granddaughter who's always sweet and cuddly and loving and everything else, but there's this thing in her, it's like, okay, now I'm gonna be stubborn. I'm going to try to find my own way. And that's kind of what's in the nature of a child. And if you don't believe it at that level, just go into the realm of like a teenager, like a teenage boy. For example, let's say there's this teenage boy up here. He's got an IQ of 125, right? You go, that's a really solid number for a kid that's like 14, 15 years old. And then you have another boy. He's also got an IQ of 125. You'd think when you bring them together, they would have a collective IQ of 250, but their IQ is actually 97 when they're together, right? You've seen this. And you go, well, then we'll add a third boy to try to offset that. It drops to 62. You know, and then if there's a cute girl and all three think she's really cute, that's what happens, right? And if you're like, no, I don't think that's true. All right, here's what I want you to do. Today, before the Seahawks game, or like 125 or whatever it is, go home, pop up some popcorn, get a fresca, go onto YouTube and type in teenage boy antics right? Or teenage boy fails. And it's going to be something with a roof and a trampoline and a pool and a ring of fire. And you're like, there it is. IQ is negative 13 because there's a girl holding the camera filming the whole thing, right? So all of this folly is bound up in kids. And therefore we want to remember that's what we're up against. It's not like downhill snow skiing where it's just so easy and gravity does it for you. <gasps> Wind in your face. No, it's like snowshoeing uphill with a hundred pound pack. And that could be great, exhilarating, beautiful vistas, fresh air, good conversation, but it's going to be a challenge. It's rewarding and it's challenging. So that's what we are up against. In light of what we're up against, we want to remember what we are also aiming for. That's the next thing in your notes. In other words, if, if at the beginning you want to bring them up, you're shooting them toward an end. And when I think about this particular point, I think about my wife, Ellen, who the evidence that God loves all three of my kids is that he gave Ellen as their mom, right? Because when I got into this whole thing of parenting, like, ah, figure it out. I can wing it. I know kids, whatever else. This is gonna be fine. And Ellen's like, no, we're gonna read books and then more books and then more books. And we're gonna go to workshops and lessons and seminars and listen to tapes because in the day we listen to tapes and we're gonna watch videos and we're gonna go to workshops and we're gonna learn all this stuff. And this is not an exaggeration. I will guarantee you, my wife has read well over probably 50 books on parenting and all the different things that go into that. Like she was on top of it. And because my wife and I love to talk, we talk all the time, I would learn a lot from her as she read all these books to me, right? And it just, from that reminded me like, we need to put some energy into knowing what we're aiming at and, and what we want to do in the process of the aim. Because it's strange how we will take a lot of time in our lives to go to a trade school for a couple of years and learn an ability or go to college for four or six or seven or 10 or whatever it is and learn a trade and we'll read all these books and put in all this energy to try to understand what we're going to do well. But then when it comes to parenting, it's like, well, over the course of our parenting careers, maybe we read two books, three books, go to one class at one time about something. 
but we don't maybe make the investment in, as intentionally as we could about how to do all of this. And so in some ways, what we do want to make sure we're doing as parents is saying, hey man, I almost, always want to keep my skills sharpened. I always want to see if there's something new to learn. Uh, maybe something about myself, maybe about the kids, whatever it is, so that I can be more effective, right? I want to know what I'm aiming at. Now, I think in this, I'm going to give you two top-shelf things that I think are important for us as parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, caregivers, whatever, when it comes to what we want to be contributing in the aim. The first thing under this point is that the focus is to instill a pursuit of true greatness not simply earthly success. That our vision, our desire, our outcome is that our children would be truly great, not simply successful. Because here's the deal. There are plenty of successful people in the world that are not great people. There's also some really great people that by worldly standards, we say not successful, but you go, man, they're the difference makers. They're the truly great individuals in this world. And when I talk about great, I'm talking about character, I'm talking about the sense of deep core anchoring in their person that makes them truly, in God's eyes, great. See, that's the place we want to be because one of the things I know as parents, and I have been as guilty of this as anybody, we tend to sometimes reward success more than greatness. So we reward good grades, or we brag about how they are on this select team, or they got into this honor society, and those are awesome. Like, it's so great to brag about the successes of our kids. But, but sometimes in that, we don't always brag about their, their aspects of greatness as much. How they were selfless in a moment. They were sacrificial. They put somebody else first. Like we pay for A's, but we don't necessarily pay for, oh, wow, you gave up something so that your sibling could have it in the place of you. And what our t- kids can tend to do with that is go, oh, well, I know it's rewarded more. Success is rewarded more than greatness. Greatness is great, but success is rewarded And so this is where we want to make sure that as much as we want to celebrate success, we really, really get excited about greatness. What's greatness look like? Proverbs chapter 4. It's a father, and he's raising his kids, and he's trying to impart some information, some insight. And so he says, my children, listen when your father corrects you. Pay attention and learn good judgment, for I'm giving you good guidance. Don't turn away from my instructions. Take my words to heart. Follow my commands, and you will live. Oh, great. What are the commands? What's the thing that they should learn? He says, get wisdom and develop good judgment. Don't forget my words or turn away from them. Don't turn your back on wisdom, for she will protect you, love her, and she will guard you. Getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do, and whatever else you do, develop good judgment. If you prize wisdom, she will make you great. Greatness. See, what we most want to see developed in our kids is not they can get A's, They can stay faithful to their team. They can make sure they do all of their recital and piano lessons and everything else. Like, those are cool, but what we most want is our kids to go, oh man, I'm getting wise, I'm growing in wisdom, I'm growing in good judgment for life, so I can make better decisions instead of reckless decisions or the best decisions instead of just good decisions. Like, that's the stuff we want to impart. So what we want to think of our framework is what we're aiming for, the bullseye on the target, is I want them to grow in wisdom and judgment. I want them to be great, not simply successful. I think kind of bolted to this is the other thing. The agenda is to raise godly adults and not simply good kids. 
Godly adults, not simply good kids. Because here's the deal. Uh, our kids outgrow their kiddedness, right? They don't say kids forever. And if my objective is just, hey, I'm just trying to have a good kid today, we're losing sight of what we're really trying to do is rear them into being really healthy, functioning, uh, godly adults. And, and I would always have to remind myself of that because it's easy as a parent to get lost in the moment of the day and you forget like, oh yeah, in 10 years, this is gonna be somebody that is an outcome of something and I want every day to count for the outcome. And so this is where the godly adult comes into play. And I think about this again in Proverbs. It's the way the whole book starts off. It says, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. And their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline. We're gonna get into that word discipline in a minute, but that's the goal of a person, right? So that they can have disciplined lives to do what is right and just and fair. These Proverbs give insight to the simple and knowledge and discernment to the young. Therefore, my child, listen to what your father says when he corrects you and what your mother says when she instructs you. What I love about this, it's kind of a reverse order, but if you start at the bottom and work up, it's like, here's a child growing into be a young person so they can be a functioning adult person by listening to wisdom and discipline and instruction. Therefore, it's reminding us as the people involved in the lives of people growing up, like, oh yeah, the goal is a godly adult. Not simply a good kid. So, we understand the bookends of how we started off in Proverbs where it's like, train them when they're young and when they're older they won't depart. We understand this is what we're up against, this is what the goal is, therefore we need to have a clear sense of knowing what they need in between all of that. Right? Which is the next point in your notes, a clear sense of what they need. And we just hinted at the clear sense, but I want to unpack it a little bit more. It's in Proverbs chapter 29, starting in verse 15. It says, to discipline a child produces wisdom, but a mother is disgraced by an undisciplined child. Discipline your children, and they will give you peace of mind, and they will make your heart glad. That word discipline, I want to unpack for just a second. And the reason I want to do that is because I think sometimes, especially in a biblical context, we hear that word and we go, oh, that means when they do something bad, make sure they feel the sense of trouble behind their badness. Make sure you give them a timeout. Make sure you give them a grounding. Make sure you spank them, whatever it is. Like we take this word discipline and we reduce it down to the singular idea of punitive, which I think is tragic. And I think it's tragic because when you read through Proverbs, for example, that's not the predominant meaning of the word, right? The idea of discipline, you ready? If you're taking notes, I want you to at least put this down. If you want to really understand how you give discipline to another, what you're doing is you're giving them a sense of self-respect and self-mastery. It's about self-control. That's the thing we want to impart. And, and, and here's an example of where this word is used way more in the positive. It's kind of in the athletic world. Like one of the things I really enjoy is to catch interviews of female athletes when they're kind of just reminiscing about their teammates or their craft or whatever else because so often they tend to have this real focus on the disciplinary aspect of it. They're like, oh, you know, when it comes to these other players that I, I, I'm with on our soccer team, like what I love about all of them is just their raw discipline. They get up early, they stay late, they go through all the drills, they focus on the little things, just the sheer self-control and self-focus, that's the discipline. And that's the thing that we want to impart to our kids more than saying, hey, make sure that they don't get away with too much. No, we're trying to teach them that they want a sense of self-dignity, self-mastery, self-control, so that they are healthy and helpful in their own lives. 
That's the essence of what it means to impart this idea of self-discipline. And here's the thing about this that uh, we all know. If it's something we don't focus on, uh, if we don't help them to develop coping mechanisms and a sense of delayed gratification and control over their emotions when they feel certain ways, if we don't help them to work through those things, eventually when they leave our home and they're in the real world, somebody else will become the apparatus of discipline. So for example, a boss will be the discipline when they say, here's your pink slip, you're fired. Or a judge will be the discipline when they say, yeah, you violated the law and here's your sentence. A cop will be the discipline when they say, yep, you were going too fast and it was reckless and you were drinking and now I'm gonna be this agent of discipline in your life. Or it's a credit score, don't loan this person any money. We're the discipline agent in their life. It's an attorney, it can be any number of things. But if we don't help them do this, they will then struggle with this. And so they will have a surrogate disciplinarian if we don't help them to grasp discipline. And so that's our heart. Not as a bad thing. The, the idea of it having any punitive element, that's just one part of a greater thing of helping them have self-mastery. And even that punitive part should be for that purpose. It shouldn't just be to be punitive for punitive's sake. Because when I was a kid, my dad, he didn't let me get away with nothing. And I'm like, well, if he didn't give you self-discipline and he just gave you discipline, he, he didn't do his best. Because the best is to impart that kind of heart. And what I tend to kind of agree with when I read other books and things on parenting is that the best discipline is a consistent plan. A consistent plan, right? Now, as I said earlier, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. So let's be clear. We can all put together a parenting plan, a grandparenting plan, whatever it is, a caregiver plan, and it's going to be tested, because human beings are complicated creatures, and little human beings are complicated creatures too. And we're complicated as it relates to that, so it's gonna be tested. But at least we wanna have a plan, because you don't wanna go into it like, hey, we had no plan, we were just kind of flying by the seat of our pants. It's like, yeah, that's gonna be really hard on everybody. Now, as to what plan you choose, personally, I'm agnostic on that. I really am. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, there's all kinds of great parenting plans. You can do parenting with love and logic. Love parenting with love and logic, personally. Love that. Uh, Tim Kimmel wrote a book on grace-based parenting. Love Kimmel's book. Others like shepherding a child's heart, uh, you know, by trip. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there. The thing about a parenting plan, it's just like a diet plan. They all actually work if you work them. But if you don't have a plan, if you're not on the same page with the plan, if we're not consistent with the plan, that's gonna be where it's really, really hard. So whatever you come up with, just, just say, I wanna really work on that and then kind of tune it as I go, right? But as you're doing that, realize you're doing it in a dynamic that I think is just reality. Right, so I'm gonna share something with you. It's not original to me by any stretch. I've seen it in different circles, um, but it's the idea of what really is happening in the process of a child growing up from like zero to 18 and beyond. It's this graphic right here. There it is. See, at zero to 18, you have two dynamics in play. And early, when kids are little, you have a lot of control. Right? Like right now with my granddaughter, I have a lot of control. Or my grandson, Ezrin, who's 10 months old, I have tons of control. I pick him up, I put him in his little baby prison. That's what I can do. Right? When he's getting into stuff and he's bugging his sister, I can just put him in baby prison. And I have all the control in the world. And so you have that. But as time goes on and as kids get older, we have to realize that you lose control and you have to start to leverage influence. 
And sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes what happens is parents go, no, I need to double down on control when they're 15. And I go, well, they're going to push back on you because, again, they have a level of control over their own lives too. And if you're not leveraging influence, you will lose voice. You will lose relationship. Now, obviously, with this graphic, I've changed it a little bit here. You'll notice, I think the control quotient drops more heavily when they're about 12. From 12 to 16, man, it's really changing fast. And then once they're mobile, once they have a car and if they have a phone, your control levels are low, right? Now you go, no, I know, I'm tracking their phone. I'm locking it down. I'm making sure I know all this stuff. Our kids are smart, man. They're smart. I've heard fascinating stories about how kids, like they buy a burner phone, right? And then they have their other life. They're, they're hiding from mom and dad because they've located another phone and got some weird plan and everything else. And they just kind of cloak it from their parents. Or they take the phone that the parents track and they just put that in the locker at school. And then they have their burner phone. They go do what they want. And the parents think they're at school. I mean, they're smart kids, man. They can be. And you're like, suddenly you're like, don't let my kid hear what you're saying because you're giving them ideas. Now it's on the internet, man. They figured it out, right? If they want to. And so some people go, I, I don't agree with this. I don't think this is true. I don't believe this. And I'm like, you cannot believe it. But it's like water freezes at zero degrees Celsius. It boils at 100 degrees Celsius. Thank you, metric system, for keeping it easy. But it's just real, right? And, and so this is where we want to be aware. Like, oh, okay, I want to get really good. I want to get really good at the influence thing, right? Not reactive, not combative, not frustrated, not having a power struggle with my kid as they get older, but learning how to leverage that. Maybe what helps in this is understanding this in a little bit more of a broken down way. Again, this isn't for me. I think I picked this up from Tim Kimmel years ago, but he gets into these four kind of different phases or cycles uh, of child raising. The first is the containment years. And the containment years are roughly zero to five years of age. This is where you're setting boundaries. Uh, There's kind of this idea of kids understanding cause and effect. What you want to work toward is more of a first-time obedience model as opposed to if you don't do it, okay, mommy's going to count to three 37 times, you know, and kids just learn that mom can count to several hundred digits before I have to do anything. We don't want to do that. We want them to understand, like, no, there's boundaries. And if anything, we want our kids to understand that they were born into a dictatorship. Benevolent, but mom and dad are dictators. It's not a democracy, right? We want them to understand, because that's life. That's a part of, at that level, how you help them to forge a sense of self-mastery and discipline. But then that builds to the next cycle, the training years, which is roughly five to 12. And that's about tasks and chores and responsibilities, expectations. And it's kind of your discipline working in tandem with their discipline. But you want to give them space for their age bracket to do what they do. A five-year-old is not going to make a bed to the same degree as a 12-year-old, which weirdly enough, sometimes you look and go, well, the five-year-old is better than the 12-year-old, but their dexterity should be better, all right? And so you're just helping them kind of grow and groom. They mow the lawn or they pull weeds in the yard, whatever it is. You're just giving them that sense of of training so they're becoming more adept at their self-discipline. This moves into then the coaching years. The coaching years are 12 to 18, And that can be a really rough patch. It just can, because again, you have to now learn influence more than ever before. And they're learning their own identity more than ever before. And that can be a challenge because again, they're starting to form their own ideas. Their cognitive abilities are are a little bit more like just spatially aware of the world. They're figuring out who they are, what they think. You're gonna have a lot of conversations with your kids where you find, hey, we don't agree politically. 
We don't agree maybe morally. We don't agree socially. Uh, but you know what? What you don't want to do there is just shut them down and squash them. Because there's a deeper thing that we always want to be valuing, which is the more we're talking, the better it is. And if we lose the ability to talk because we feel like we need to swoop in from above as opposed to come alongside, in time they're going to be like, I'm not going to talk to mom and dad. Because they freak out when I share my thoughts or ideas. And some of them, you're going to hear ideas and you're like, oh Lord, I got to pray twice as long now. That's okay. That's okay because what you do want is the connection. Because if we lose influence, we lose influence. I mean, that's the most painful part. And I know as a parent, the temptation that says, you know what, I've just got to nip this right now. I got to make sure they don't keep thinking this way. What you want to do, if, if you really want to help them change their thinking, is you got to think this through with them. You want to be a space of them having self-discovery and the process as opposed to, I'm just going to tell you what to think. Because eventually they leave the home, they go to college, and now it's open game. Right? Or they just leave the home and they go to a trade school or they get a job or whatever. And, and if, if, if we haven't helped them to learn how to continue to process and we process with them, we lose all of that, that ability to really influence. And so when kids are little, it's physically exhausting. And when they're older, it's emotionally exhausting. But that's a part of the influence. And so maybe in this, just a couple of little bits that I've learned over the course of time— in that phase, um, first of all, uh, as a parent or a grandparent or whatever, strive to have faith more than fear as your motivator. Like, remember, God loves your kids more than you do. Because it's really easy to get so motivated as a parent in the teen years with fear that then you're trying to control, and they resist it, and you squeeze tight, and then they squirt out the finger spaces, and it just, it can be really, really hard on everybody. And so this is where we have to go, God, i got to trust you more than be rooted in fear. Maybe another thing in this is err on the side of grace more than you err on the side of law. Right? And what I mean is if, if, if you're gracious, even in their mistakes, their failures, your differences, that's, they're more apt to want to come back to you and talk to you than law. Like, you look at how many kids grew up in Christian homes that utterly reject the faith. And almost to a T, when you hear their stories, they're like, my home was legalistic, it was rule-based, I was shamed, I was whatever, I want nothing to do with that. Because it wasn't grace-based. It was just kind of law-based. It sounded more like Moses than it did like Jesus. And this is where we want to go, man, I want to fight to sound like Jesus. Right? Especially in the lives of these kids as they're emerging toward adulthood. And then for some of you that maybe you're dealing with really struggling teens right now, and you're struggling as a parent as it relates to teens, find other parents that you find safe to interact with, talk with, cry with, pray with, whatever it might be. Find those safe parents where, you know, I can share and I'm not going to be judged. I can share and just find some sense of inspiration and stability. It's a tough season sometimes for some families. But then this leads to the fourth phase, which is the friendship years. And the friendship years are kind of like 18 and above, right? And here's the thing for us to remember. Um, we've raised them. We've reared them. Now our job is to respect who they are. We may not always agree with what they do or what they think, but we need to respect who they are and that our job as far as rearing them is sort of over. In fact, there's a great book called uh, Parenting Adult Children, I think is what it's called. And it's a book that could be one page. And the one page would say, here's what you do with adult kids as a parent. Uh, you keep your mouth shut and you're welcome mad out. And what the author is getting at there is we want to be a space where they always want to come home to. 
So whatever you do up to that point, make it a space they want to come home to. And when it comes to things that you see them doing, do your best to not give them advice unless they ask. Or you ask if you can give some advice, and then you can give the advice if they say sure. But here's what none of us like. We don't like it when our parents, our adult parents, give us advice as adults, do we? Not when we don't ask. That kind of can bug a lot of us, right? I know in my world, that was true for me. You know, again, I have a, a healed relationship with my father today, but for years as an adult, he would come into my world and be like, hey, here's what you should do. Hey, Matt, I see this is what's happening. You should make this decision instead of that decision. And I would get so frustrated. I'm like, bro, you're on marriage three. I'm still in marriage one. My kids all talk and we're a close family. Your kids don't have a relationship with you. Why are you giving me advice? Let me do, let's flip this, bro. I'll give you some advice. Right? And that was something I really had to work through. And for me, it was more of a bitter space. But maybe for others, it's not a bitter thing. But we know that, man, none of us like being told things. But if it's solicited or if we ask permission, that's great. Because this final phase is just saying, you know what? You are an autonomous person. I want to be supportive of you. And I want to be behind you in what you do. Right? Because you've reached that stage as a person. You're now in adult life, and you get to operate in adult space, and so it's the friendship years as much as possible. Now, throughout this whole thing, as we try to influence and everything else, we need to remember this final idea here, that the biggest influencer is, is you. You are the biggest influencer. As that process moves along, what you do, how you live, how you act and react to the conditions of life— all the young people in our world are watching us. In fact, when we look at some of the data, this is partly why they're stressed. Partly why they're discouraged. Like, wow, we see the friction between the parties and the politics and everything else. And, ugh. Now, now we need to really want to take ownership of the fact that we want to be a positive source of influence because we're doing it whether we mean to or not, like in a million little ways over the course of their growing up. And so if we're going to influence well... First of all, we want to give them a model of character. I'm going to race through these really quick. We want to give them a model of character. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's a list for, for church leadership on how they are to display their lives, and it says they're to be above reproach and faithful to their spouse, self-controlled, they're to be wise, have a good reputation, they're to be hospitable, they can teach, they're not a heavy drinker, not violent, they're gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, they manage their home well, and they have children who respect and obey them. And part of that is because they do things that allow their kids to easily respect and obey them because they're operating in that context. Like, that's the context that we all want to do it in. And, and so our character matters. We don't want to be the people that say, you know what, it's not what I do, it's what I say. Like, they go, well, I don't, what am I going to do with that? Now, we get to put on display how we hope they all turn out to be. So give them a model of character. Next, give them an environment of security. Of security. And this is at two levels. I'm going to start more particular for those maybe in the room that are, that are married and raising kids. Um, let your marriage be a source of security as opposed to a source of insecurity. Malachi chapter 2. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? And what does he desire from this? Well, he seeks godly children from your union. So guard your heart and remain loyal to the wife of your youth. What I like about this is the relationship between how the married life creates stability for a healthy family life with the children. And we all know this, right? 
Like, I don't know your story. I know my story. I grew up in an incredibly tumultuous home when it came to the marriage, and it was tumultuous then for the kids, right? It was just constant insecurity. You didn't know when the fight was gonna break out. It's just, it's a rough thing all the way around. And so this is where it's like, man, maybe your marriage is struggling and you're fighting in front of the kids and you don't mean to. I would just encourage you, like, get some help, get some outside counseling, whatever it might take to do that, certainly for the sake of the little ones in your life, the kids in your life that are watching that and trying to get security and stability from the relationship. That's so critical. But I also know there's some parents that, you know, you're not married in the room or your grandparents or, again, caregivers to children or whatever it is. This extends to kind of that bigger nucleus as well, right, where we are all to be able to be a source of security. In fact, in Proverbs 17, verse 1, it says, Better a dry crust eaten in peace than a house filled with feasting and conflict. All right, right? so literally saying it's better to be poor and kind of uh, relationally healthy than to have everything and have conflict. In Proverbs 24, 3, it says, A house is built by wisdom and becomes strong through good sense. All right, so whatever the dynamic is of the bubble of where your kids kind of dwell, you want that to be a source of security. And again, I say that firsthand. I grew up in radical insecurity, and I knew that one day, man, as soon as I could, I was going to extract myself from that and then just try to, to be the opposite of what I grew up with. And again, a lot of these relationships in my world are now healed, but back in the day, like, Ellen and I got married, and we moved from one, one, like, uh, line of the country to the other line of the country like okay we were from the extreme south we're going to the extreme north right because it's just like i want to reboot our family because it was so fractured right i mean even to this day i have three brothers in the last 20 years of these three brothers i bet collectively we've had 20 hours of conversation in 20 years because the family just blew apart when i was a kid Right? And it never really could come back together. And we're all kind of estranged now. And so I just knew like, hey, whatever our family is going to turn out to be, it's going to be tight. Right? I'm going to work hard for that. That's going to be a goal of mine. And we're not perfect. We don't have it all figured out. We don't all agree on all the things of life. But you know what? We have dinner three times a week and my kids are all in their 20s. You know, I get to see my grandkids most every day because they wanted to stay close together as a family. It's such a rewarding thing if you create stability. Again, we didn't do it perfect. It's not all easy or simple. But boy, this is a target we want to shoot for. So we give them security. Also, give them an outlook of courage. Right? Kids are already stressed out enough. Fear, despair, anxiety. So we are God's proxy to give them courage. I think about this throughout the Old Testament. It says the same basic idea, but we see it here in Deuteronomy 31.6. We're telling our kids, man, be strong, be courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't panic about the things of life for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. We want to constantly tell our kids that. It's easy to discourage a kid. It's hard to impart courage. That takes focus, right? But when they do that, we're telling them, or when we do that, we say, hey, you can do it. I believe in you. You got this. God's with you. Don't sweat this. Don't sweat the little stuff and pretty much everything's the little stuff. Like, that's the message we want to impart. Because again, the world's going to work against them in that. And we want to work for them and give them that. Now in this, what we also want to give them is grace. Give them grace. Remind them the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. It's easy to give them critique or criticism or insight or guidance or whatever else. But the biggest thing we want them to know by the time they leave our sphere of influence is, man, those people get grace. 
Those people show grace. Those people love grace. And they showed it to me. But then last, this is something for us as individuals. In this process, give yourself some grace too. Give yourself some grace too. I mean, I know I've painted a portrait that has some high standards attached to it. But give yourself some grace in the process. In other words, you could take all of this and say, now I'm going to double down on how freaked out I am to raise kids. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. And, and don't start going, I'm worried about tomorrow. I'm worried about next year. I'm worried about their graduation. I'm worried about their college career. I'm worried about whatever. Like, like Jesus does us a big favor. He's like, ah, tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough problems, right? <laughs> but go just focus on today. It's easy to worry about if my kid's going to graduate, if they're going to get a passing grade in algebra and all the things that we worry about. But Jesus is like, don't, don't get so wrapped up into tomorrow. You lose sight of the proper, healthy, grace-based investment of the day. Now, the other thing in this I'd say is you give yourself some grace is, you know what, you might reflect and go, I didn't do this well. I, 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 I've, I've, I've been controlling. I've been dictatorial on the back end. I've been combative. I haven't used influence. I've tried to control my 16-year-old, and now they're rebellious to me or whatever else. Man, here's, here's a great thing that God says in Lamentations, one of the saddest books of the Old Testament. He says, just remember my mercies are new every morning. My mercies are new every morning. So the idea that says, you know what, oh, I'm just stuck. I did it wrong. I don't know how to fix it. No, his mercy is new today for you. And so you just go, God, I'm moving forward. I want to do it better than I've done it. He's like, awesome, let's do that. Maybe it means even you have to go to your kids or your grandkids or your niece or nephew or whatever and say, you know what, I'm sorry. You know, in my own fear, my own frustration, and my own legalism, whatever it is, I just, I didn't make the investment I wanted to. Will you forgive me? That's powerful. That's powerful. I can tell you that as a kid whose father, after being pretty critical of him for most of his life, actually came to him in the last year and said, dude, I was really hard on you your entire life. Will you forgive me for that? Is there anything you want to get off your chest? I'm like, I have nothing to get off my chest, but I appreciated that ownership. I'm like, thank you. That can be one of the most powerful things we do because it shows our own humility and our own sense of growing in this process. And so there's grace for you as much as you are then called to share grace with others. And God will do great things in that. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, we are imperfect people doing a very challenging thing. Human beings raising human beings. Fallible people raising fallible people. But we look to you, and we need your forgiveness, and we need your strength. And we want to do our best. And again, that's, that's all we can probably really do in this is the best that we can do. But we want to do it in you. If there's anybody in this room this morning where you're like, man, I, 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 I want to make some things right, I, I just encourage you right now, just where you're at, to say, God, help me to do it differently than the way I've been doing it or to make it right where maybe I've done it less than the way I wanted to and, and just forgive me and help me. And, and I believe he's going to help you with that. And there's also probably some people in the room or some people watching where you're like, man, I'm not even a Christian, but I know that I, I want Jesus to be the center of how I move forward in doing these things. That's a prayer away for you where you simply acknowledge, I've gone my own way. Jesus, I need you in my life. I want your life to be overlaid in my life so that I can live my life with you and for you. If you make that your prayer and your way, he hears you, he receives you, and we want to hear from you. In our app, there's a tile you could tap on. It lets us know you made that decision today and made that prayer. We'd love to hear from you in that. That would be awesome. Because we're all on a journey. We're all imperfect people, but we have been rescued by a perfect God. 
And so, Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect God that rescues, and you show us your grace. We love you and thank you in your name. Amen.